All right, let's open in prayer, uh, and then we'll work through this pretty tough text here. <clears throat> Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel story that we read in it. We thank you for the good news that you are our Savior, and that through your death we have been uh, redeemed, we've been justified, we have been brought together as your children, and uh, that your death has created this family that we love so much. And so, Lord, this is a tough text to read and, um, you know, a tough part of the Bible to get through. And I just pray that you would help us to look at it with kingdom eyes, help us to read this text uh, as your Holy Spirit uh, illuminates it to our hearts. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's say start my timer. There we go. So there's a great book that someday you should all read, but it'll take you a while to get through it. Um, it's a book, it's by this guy, this British pastor. I like British guys. I don't know why, because they, I like reading British sermons and stuff, because they're not all worried about all the same things Americans are worried about. It's interesting. They have like a slightly different perspective. So there's this British pastor from back in the day. His name is John Stott, and he wrote one of my favorite books of all time. It's called The Cross of Christ. And in this book, he goes through why did Jesus die, a lot of this stuff. At the beginning of his book, though, like the, very, the intro, I want to read this to you. I don't have a slide for this. I'll just read this. It says, every religion and ideology has a visual symbol, which illustrates uh, a significant feature of the history or beliefs. So the lotus flower, for example, it was used by the ancient Chinese, Egyptians and Indians, uh, sorry, the ancient Chinese, Egyptians and Indians, and is now particularly associated with Buddhism. It's because of the wheel shape. It's thought to depict either the cycle of birth and death or the emergence of beauty and harmony out of the muddy waters of chaos. Right? You've seen the lotus flower symbol. Sometimes the Buddha is portrayed as enthroned uh, on a fully open lotus flower. So he talks about Buddhism. That's the one I read. But I won't read you the whole thing here. But what, then he goes into other ones. He talks about Islam. Right? What's the, the symbol of Islam? The crescent. What's the symbol of Judaism? Well, ancient Judaism, they avoided symbols. They didn't have one. More recent Judaism, though, it's the Star of David. You see a Star of David and you think, okay, that's Judaism, you know, the Jewish folks. Um, like communism, right? It has, what, the hammer and sickle. Uh, the Nazis took the swastika, right, and they flipped it over. And so every time you see a, a swastika, it's funny, actually, I was in... Um, Chinatown, and I was walking by one of the temples, and they had the back, you know, the, the original <laughs> backwards swastika. But I saw it, and immediately I'm like, oh, they have a swastika, you know. Like you, you think of Nazis when you think of the swastika. Christianity, right? We're here at a Christian church listening to the, the gospel being preached. What's our symbol? Is it a crown to show that Jesus is the king, right? Every one of these sermons if you go on the podcast and you listen, it's called, the word king is in every one of the sermon titles. The king's best friends, the king's cross is today, the king's whatever, right? So is it a crown? No. Is it a temple of some kind? The theme of temple is pretty big in our faith, uh, but no, it's not a temple. Is it a manger to talk about the incarnation? It's not a manger. Is it a 12-sided something or other to show the apostles and their authority? No. Isn't that the dice, by the way? Is it 12-sided for Dungeons and Dragons? Oh, okay. Uh, is it a dove to talk about the Holy Spirit and Jesus' baptism? No. Fire from Pentecost? Nope. What's our symbol? It's a cross. That's a little odd, isn't it? Right. But think about it. We see crosses everywhere, don't we? We see them 
on churches, right? As I look out my window from one side, I see the cross at the top of, uh, I think Grace Cathedral might still have one maybe. I don't know why they would, but yeah, they have one. Uh, you look down at, uh, I can see from my house, St. Peter and Paul's. Um, you know, they've got the two crosses at the top of the steeples there. Um, you see them everywhere. Churches, tattoos, a lot of cross tattoos. Uh, you see it on, what, jewelry. People have crosses all over jewelry. Gravestones are crosses. A lot of gravestones have crosses on them. But think about it. It's kind of a weird symbol, isn't it? It was an instrument of oppression. It was an instrument of torture. The cross was an instrument of humiliation. And for some reason, this is the part of Christianity that we're like, it's going to be our symbol. This is our crescent. This is our lotus flower. This is our star of David. It's the cross. What does that tell you about us? That's what we're going to talk about today. Why is the cross so, so key, so central? So we're going to work our way through this passage. We've got a lot of verses today. Um, remember, when I talked about, by the way, going through the book of Luke together, what I said was there were different ways we could do it. <laughs> and we actually did it the medium way, <laughs> uh, meaning we could have done this. This is like, what, 70-something, 70 75 or 6? We could be in like the 110 if I really skipped a few. Like there were a few where this is one of the ones where we're going to read a couple of stories kind of all together. So we could read the part where he talks to the women. We could read just the part where he talks to the thief on the cross. We could read just the words he says. But we're going to kind of take the whole thing because I want to talk about the whole story of the cross. So verse 26, uh, chapter 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So if you remember, last, time, last week we left Jesus with the uh, Pilate has now uh, given him the death sentence, washed his hands, take him yourselves and crucify him, which also doesn't make a lot of sense because the Jewish guys don't crucify Jesus, the Romans do. <laughs> take him and crucify him, but use my soldiers and my stuff and do, you know. So Pilate now is sending Jesus to be crucified. And uh, they led him away is how this starts. So this is what would have happened. We're going to get into some gory details today. Uh, so just a heads up, this is a PG-13 sermon today. This is what would happen. So Jesus has been flogged. He's been beaten up all night. Every group of soldiers he came to was thumping him and stomping him and, aha, who hit you? Right? That's bad enough, just getting beat up like that. But then after that, they take him and they tie his arms up and they did the whole flogging with the cat of nine tails. We talked about this last week where it had this nine-tailed whip that they would tie pieces of bone into the whip. So it would hit you, and then they would pull it. And it, So Jesus now, his whole chest and his back is thrashed. Um, they would probably try to get the back of your legs, too. And so Jesus is weak. He's beat up. He hasn't eaten since the night before. Um, they're probably not giving him a lot of water. This is tough. And what they would do then is they took Jesus, and they would tie the cross beam of the cross like this to his back. So they would tie it to each arm. And then they would force him to then carry the cross. I didn't look it up, actually. I used to know it. I forget. It's like a, just over a mile from where he would have started this walk to ending it, I think. I could be wrong about that. But, I mean, it's a good deal to walk with nothing tied to your back. But this cross beam weighs 80 or 90 pounds. It's a big piece of wood, right? And so then what happened is Jesus is walking. But you, you could imagine he's weak. He's hurt. He's in a lot of pain. And every couple of steps, he tries to take a step, and he falls down um, with the crossbeam, though, tied to his back. Nothing to support himself. 
right? So he's like falling, he's hitting his face on the ground. After a while, um, I think these soldiers, they were really good at what they did. This was the execution squad. These were not the soldiers that were out fighting wars. Like these guys were professional crucifiers. And so they could look at a guy and know, okay, he's about to die. And we don't want this guy to die because we want to crucify him. And so what they did was they untied Jesus from the cross after one of the times, the cross beams, um, from one of the times when he fell over. They untied him because they realized he's not going to make it all the way there. He's going to die before we get there. And we don't want him to die before we get there. The whole point of this is to humiliate him for hours and hours on the cross. So they take this guy, Simon, out of the crowd um, who was just walking by. And so then they give the cross to Simon. I don't know if they tied it to him or what. It doesn't really say. Um, but he carries the cross for Jesus. Now, this guy, Simon of Cyrene, uh, Cyrene was a town in North Africa. And so a lot of folks say he was, he was a, like some commentaries and stuff say he was kind of a dark-skinned African guy, uh, North African guy. But Cyrene actually was one of the towns outside of Jerusalem that had the largest Jewish population. So odds are this guy was Jewish and he was in town for Passover, that sort of stuff. He could have been a black African. We, we don't really know. But we do know later on in the New Testament, they mention his kids. And they're like, hey, you know these two guys, Simon's kids? Like they're just part of the church. So church history kind of tells us that this guy and then his family, they all became believers. So he's the guy, he helps Jesus carry the cross. And there followed him a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So if you remember, what we talked about last week is the crowd that's chanting crucify him is not really the whole crowd of people in Jerusalem because it's so early in the morning Yesterday was like their Christmas, right? It was Passover. Everybody is stuffed. They're full. They've been drinking wine all night. Nobody woke up early. And so the time the crucifixion starts is also the same time that the first temple service starts. So all of the religious people, all of the devout people, they're at the temple while Jesus is uh, with Pilate. And so the crowd now, word starts to get around. They've got Jesus and they're crucifying him. So the crowd now moves over from the temple uh, around the corner, it's actually very close to where Jesus was, around the corner, and the crowd starts to get bigger and bigger, and there were these women there. And verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, so they're weeping for Jesus, they're upset about what's happening to Jesus. And Jesus stops after he doesn't have the cross on him anymore. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So this is a very odd little thing, but what happened, odd little, um, you know, like I said, this part here could be a whole sermon too, but uh, this is what I'll say about this. Uh, Jesus stops, and these women are crying for him, and they're mourning, and he stops, and he speaks to them, and what he says is, you think it's bad what's happening to me? We've only reached the tip of the iceberg of what Rome can do. And again, he says, do you, like, he's basically saying, do you remember just a couple of days ago when I was preaching in the temple and I was teaching and I predicted that in a few years, Rome's going to come in and they are going to completely, um, that was pretty loud, uh, they're going to completely destroy the temple. And so what we're getting here is just like a, of course, the car alarm is right across the street. Uh, anyway, yeah, you want to shut those doors for a sec? We'll open them in a minute. Um, oh, never mind. We're good. 
Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, he says, this is the tip of the iceberg of what Rome is going to do. They're going to come in and they're going to destroy. And they're not going to crucify one person. They're going to crucify thousands of people. And you're all going to be suffering so bad that you're going to say, I wish I never had kids because my kids are suffering. And so in the middle of this conversation that you can imagine, the soldiers uh, were not too... Um, uh, we're not allowed to let, uh, not about to let a condemned man stop and chat while he's on his way to the cross. And so you can imagine there was probably some sort of a quit stalling, and they kicked him or hit him or hit him with a whip or something. And then Jesus kept going. And so, um, uh, verse 32. So they keep going to the cross now. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. So this is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 53. Um, it says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, this is the death that Jesus is dying. He's dying the death of the worst criminals. He's dying the death of the murderers and the thieves and all this stuff. And he's being numbered among them. Um, this is, you know, the song we sing sometimes. We didn't sing it today because there were too many songs already, you know. But death in his grave. On Friday, a thief. Sunday a king. But this is the idea. He is being treated here as the lowest of the low, as he takes our sin upon him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, so uh, the other gospels tell us this place is called Golgotha. Luke kind of translates that though. Um, the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Okay, so there's a church in Jerusalem. This is the place where Jesus was crucified. This Catholic church. It's not the place. Uh, probably not the place. Most scholars agree that more than likely, this is the place where Jesus was crucified. The hill is still there, and it's a little more worn down than what it used to be, erosion and all that. But can you see the skull in the side of the hill? Do you see it right there on the right? There's two eyes and a nose. And underneath, they said there used to be more of a mouth that looked like a skull. Okay, this is probably the place where Jesus was crucified. It's called Golgotha. And do you know what it is now? It's a bus station. There's no church. There's no monument. You know, there's no anything there. This is where I have a picture somewhere else, too, of a lady sitting looking at the skull at a, on a bench waiting for the bus. And she looks like this is where she waits every day for the bus. You know, I kind of like that there's no whole thing here. But anyway, so they led him to this place. The important part is this, um, this place is inside the city of Jerusalem now, but back then it was outside the city gates. So they take him outside the city gates, um, and with the criminals, uh, uh, they crucified him. Now, Luke is really interesting here. All the Gospels are really interesting. Um, they don't explain this at all. There they crucified him, and that's all they say. They don't explain what that means because everybody back then knew what this was and knew the brutality of this. So I'll, I'm going to explain this to you. Humans are awful, right? Every time somebody says people are basically good, I go, hmm, are they though? Like just think of some of the things that humans have come up with over the years. So back in the Middle Ages, they used to do this thing where they would try to torture somebody and get information out of them. And so what they would do is they would take a bowl and they would tie a guy down, they would take a bowl, they would put a rat in it, and they'd put it on his stomach. Have you ever heard of this? And then they would put hot stones on the rat, so the bowl would get really hot, and the rat would freak out, and they would start eating the guy. Somebody thought of that. Somebody was like, you know what we should do, Frank? And then Frank was like, hey, that's a fantastic idea. 
let's let this rat eat this human being through so he'll tell us whatever we want to hear so that then we can go kill him. Or the Assyrians back in like the book of Jonah and stuff, those guys, what they used to do is they would take a guy out, they would bury him to his neck, they'd pull his tongue out and they'd put a nail through it into the ground and they would just leave him to die from exposure or thirst or whatever. Again, somebody thought of that. Like this is what human beings came up with. The Nazis did surgery on people with no anesthesia just to see how long they could last. It's brutal. Vikings, I could keep going. I have a bunch of these. Blood Eagle, you know it's a Blood Eagle? Okay, I'm not going to explain it. That one's too gross to explain, but don't Google it. (laughs) Like, people are awful. Humanity blows. But at the top of that list of like the nastiest, worst things that people have come up with, right there in that top two or three worst ways to die in history is crucifixion. The Romans actually didn't even invent it, but what they did was they perfected it. They took this older thing, and um, it was so bad that the Romans would never crucify a Roman. Right? Imagine having a punishment that's so bad that you're like, my kind of people are never going to have to endure this. Cicero said this, um, who was like a philosopher and stuff. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible of a deed. Later on, he would go on to talk about how Romans, in Roman society, you weren't even allowed to talk about crucifixion. It was like a thing that the Roman nobles and the fancy guys pretended didn't even happen because it was so brutal, they didn't even want to know about it. The Jews, the Jewish folks in the first century, they hated crucifixion, though, for another reason. In Deuteronomy, what is it, 21, 23, it says that anybody who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. And so, in addition to the pain and suffering, there's a great deal of shame in being crucified if you're a Jewish person. You are under the curse of God. This is why the leaders didn't stone Jesus like they stoned Stephen a few months later, or years later, whatever Stephen was. Right? Remember Stephen standing before the same guys. I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, and they flip out, and they take him outside, and they stone him to death. And Paul was like kind of supervising the execution, right? You know that story? Why didn't they do that to Jesus? Because they needed him to hang on the tree. They needed everybody to look at him and go, no way this guy's the Messiah. That's what they were thinking. He's under the curse of God. And so you see, uh, they, they hated it for that, but also crucifixion, the Jewish folks hated it because it was the method of execution for the oppressive Romans. Um, it was a tool by an unjust occupying force. And it was used to sort of suppress any Jewish rebellion. Like there were a lot of instances where Rome came in and there was some sort of an uprising. And so Rome crucified like 2,000 Jewish men on the way into Jerusalem. So if you wanted to go to Jerusalem, you had to walk for miles and miles by these men hanging from these crosses. And if you saw that a couple of times in your lifetime, which you probably would have if you were a Jewish person in this time, you looked at that cross and you said, I hate this. This is what Rome This is what Rome does to us. Oh, man, I forgot to find a slide. Okay, you can Google this. Um, That sort of shame lasted. And so one of the earliest pictures, it might be the earliest picture of Jesus that we have, of somebody drawing Jesus, is actually graffiti. And I forget where it is. I think it's in Rome. I think you can go see it in Rome or just outside of Rome. And um, uh, there's a picture, like an old graffiti, of a man being crucified, but he has a donkey's head. 
And then there's a guy next to him, like a stick figure, bowing down. And in writing, underneath it, it said, Alexa Menos worships his God. So from a couple of years after this, there was graffiti of everybody making fun of, this guy's worshiping somebody being crucified. Because the shame of this was so big, right, that nobody could believe it. And it was so bad, like I said, the Romans wouldn't even talk about it. The Jews despised the shame. What was so bad about it? Well, I'll tell you what happens, right? In all four Gospels, there's no elaborate description given. Like I said, it's just assumed that everybody knew what it was. So this is what would happen. First, there's the flogging, right? We talked about that a bunch. So you're the victim, the the condemned guy. He's beaten, and he's almost dead just from that. Second, there's what we talked about, the carrying of the cross beam to the place of execution. Now, the cross, we don't actually know what it looked like because there were different ways that this happened. So sometimes it was like an uppercase T. Sometimes it was like a lowercase T. Sometimes it was an X or even a Y shape. And then sometimes it was just a pole where they would tie you to the top of the pole and then to the bottom. Um, For years and years, a lot of folks, like in the, the... the world of scholars and everything. Well, these Christians made this whole thing up about them using nails on a cross. Um, And then they actually found a guy who had nails. Now, most crucifixions didn't use nails because nails are expensive, right? You got to really hate a guy to waste a nail on him, right? And so they did find a guy, though, and uh, they found a foot, you know, in a grave somewhere with a nail through the foot, like, and they could tell it had been nailed to a cross. So uh, what they would do is they would take the victim and they would tie ropes around the arms and legs, and then they would nail them down. Uh, and they would lift the person up and then set the crossbeam on top of the cross. So right now they're just by their arms. That's just an insane amount of pain. I'll tell you a quick story. Like, uh, I have this giant scar on my wrist. Um, I call it the dune worm because that's what it looks like, a dune worm coming up and down to my arm. Um, what happened was I had a cyst in my arm when I was in high school, and it, it was pushing on a nerve cluster. And so they had to take it out. But before they took it out, they were like, uh, we got to drain the cyst thing, right? It's kind of gross. So anyway, they took this needle that like, you know, like the doctor takes a needle and you're like, oh, that looks kind of big. Okay, you could see down the barrel of this thing when he pointed it at me and did the little squirt, squirt, you know. And what he did was he put the needle through my wrist here, through that cluster of nerves. So kind of like, you got to wiggle it in and then drain it like this. I swear, it felt like my hand was on fire. It was the worst pain that I've ever experienced. And the thing was, he gave me this little thing to like hold, like squeeze this, and I broke it like with my other hand. It was brutal, and it was only less than 10 seconds, right? And then as soon as he pulled it out, it felt better, and the nerve stopped hurting or whatever. But touching a nerve with anything, this is what they would do with crucifixion. They didn't nail through the hands. That wouldn't, because there's, there's no nerves there. That, that hurts, but it only kind of hurts. The nerve cluster that runs right here They would nail, and then unlike me, who got to take it out right away, and it barely was, I mean, it hurt, but nothing compared to this, then all of your weight is pushing down on those nerves. It's an unimaginable um, amount of pain. And what would happen is they would lift them up, then they would nail, we, all the pictures of Jesus, they nail them through the top of the feet, but that's not really what happened. They would nail kind of, most likely, down through the side of your foot. And they, like, your foot would not be on the front of the cross, it would be on the side, and they would nail you in this way. So all of the weight of your body would have to be pushed down onto these nails. And so the idea with crucifixion was it was extremely painful, but it took forever to die. Because what would happen is the human will to live is very strong. 
And so what the, the, the crucified person would do is they would push up and it would be extremely painful so they could suck in a little bit of air. And then their body would sag back down where they couldn't breathe because their arms were being stretched out. And um, uh, this is how, this would go on for a lot of times for days and days. So when Jesus actually dies, there's a part in one of the other gospels where Pilate goes already. Right? It's only been six hours or whatever it was. Because it usually took way longer than that. And so this is the, 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 the brutal part of crucifixion, how mean it is, is. The whole thing is built on the person's will to live. Even when you're being tortured like this, he could just let himself die if he would just stop pushing up. Right? But that's not what they do. Right? Nobody does that. Everybody keeps trying to live for just a little bit and a little bit longer. And that tension of I want to die because this is so brutal but the will to live within me is even just a tiny little bit stronger is what makes crucifixion go on for days. But eventually, death would come. And there were a few ways to die on a cross. Heart attack, heart failure, something like that is probably how a lot of people died. Dehydration. Um, eventually, though, most people would die by suffocating. Blood loss is another one. But most people would die by suffocating because eventually you run out of strength and you literally can't do another push-up. You can't pull yourself up one more time. And then you, all of a sudden you stretch out and you can't breathe. And so Jesus, here on the cross, all of the gospel writers very plainly, and then they crucified him. No details about what happens here. Um, but imagine if you were just reading the book of Luke for the first time. I know that's hard to do because we all know the story. But imagine if you were reading this for the first time and you didn't know the story for a second. You know, you're a first century person and they're told... This is an M. Night Shyamalan twist, what's happening here in this story, right? You remember him back when he made like two good movies in the 90s and then 45 bad ones after? Uh, but you remember the, the Sixth Sense? He was dead. Oh, wait, did I just spoil it? He was dead the whole time. Came out in 1998 or whatever. It's, you missed your chance. This is one of those kind of twists, though, right? This is the miracle baby from the beginning of the book. This is the rabbi who was baptized and the heavens opened and God the Father said, this is my son, Right? And the spirit fell on him like a dove. This is the guy who resisted the devil in the wilderness, who for chapter after chapter was healing people, bringing people back from the dead, teaching about the love of God and the kingdom of God. Right? He fed 5,000 people with a couple of pieces of bread and some fish sticks. He walked on water. It's crazy. This guy is the hero. Um, he was received in Jerusalem with these adoring crowds. He defeated the spiritual leaders in their honor shame contest, right? The, the uh, theological rap battle. The trajectory of the whole gospel is up, up, up. Jesus is becoming greater and greater and greater and greater. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of left field, here he is now, covered in blood. The Old Testament tells us he was beaten so badly that you couldn't even recognize his face if you knew who he was. Nails through his heels and his wrists, hanging from a Roman cross, gasping for air, spitting up blood, struggling to breathe, life fading away. And the gospel writers just, they crucified him. Keep going. And Jesus said, so Jesus now hanging there on the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. Normally, from a cross, while you're being tortured, what do you think the kind of language coming from the men on the cross would be? They are cursing, they're cursing the soldiers, they're cursing the crowds who are making fun of them, right? It's a very upsetting thing. What does Jesus do? 
basically the exact opposite. He prays for the forgiveness of the soldiers who are killing him. He lived, he, this is the ultimate epitome of when he told his disciples, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He does it. And I love that this must have been really impactful for the early church. Because when something is really deep in your heart and deep in like who you are, that's what comes out in moments of crisis, right? The deeper something is, that's what happens the more of a crisis you're in. And there's a guy named Stephen we just talked about. He gets into himself into a pickle, right? I guess is one way you could put it. He's in quite a crisis. They are literally stoning him to death. And what does he do? He calls out, Father, for, you know, just, he basically quotes Jesus. He prays for the forgiveness of the guys stoning him. Right? Jesus here from the cross praying this had a deep impact on his disciples. And he's praying for these guys. They're casting lots. That's another fulfillment of prophecy. Because these executioners would get to keep all the guys' stuff that they were killing. Right? So Jesus, we're told, had like a nice jacket. And they all wanted his jacket. So instead of tearing it up and dividing it into four, they, they roll some dice to see who gets his stuff. And then the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So, again, a big reason for crucifixion like this was um, to humiliate somebody, not just to kill them, to humiliate them, to bring, and this is an honor-shame culture, to bring this shame. Um, and so they're making fun of him. He says he's the Savior. He can't even save himself. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So I've heard people in sermons, I remember this from when I was a kid, a pastor saying, the soldiers were being merciful to Jesus. He's thirsty, they're giving him something to drink. Something to, this wine was really strong, it was like a drug to dull the pain. Uh, everything I read this week said, no, that's not exactly what happened. What happened here was, they're making fun of him. Luke does not portray these as nice guys. They're making fun of Jesus as he's dying and gasping for air from the cross. And as they see him start to fade, they go, hey, let's give him something to drink. Because giving him something to drink would give him a little bit of strength and make the whole process last longer. And so feeding and giving water to somebody dying on the cross was actually making, it was, it was bad, right? You're, you're prolonging the torture, and that's what they're doing here. Verse 38, there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. So the Romans used crucifixion as a tool to keep a subjugated people oppressed. That's what they were doing. They want to keep the people down, and this brutal form of execution was how they did it. But they also, what they would do is they would write the, the crime on a little plaque and put it above the cross, because most of these guys were here for days and days. And they would usually crucify people in very public places, like I said, coming into the city, something like that, where everybody would have to see. And the Romans, the point of this was, we want you to know that if you do this, this is what we're going to do to you. This is how we keep any sort of rebellion down. Um, and so this is Jesus' charge. He thinks he's the king, right? He thinks he's, uh, you know, I mean, we can get it, you know, we don't have to get into this. We talked about this last week, but what kind of kingdom and all that. But this is what they write on the thing. Um, I think one of the other gospels says they wrote it in a few different languages, right? So it's written a few times. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save us and save yourselves. Have you ever been so mad that you'll lash out at anybody? You know what I mean? You're like, you're so upset that you'll yell at somebody. If you're married, you know about this. Right? You're mad about something else. You come home, 
can't you do the dishes just one time, you know, right? And, but you're not really mad at your spouse. You're mad at somebody else. That's kind of what's going on here. These guys are very upset. They're obviously being tortured the same way Jesus is. They, who are they going to lash out at? They lash out at Jesus. Um, one of the other gospels tells us, though, too, it was actually both of them at first. So at first it was both of the, the men, and then one of them sort of, the second guy has a change of heart, verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, do not fear God. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving our reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So this guy gets it, right? We're getting what we deserve. But again, last week, the whole sermon was Jesus is innocent, right? This is another one of those instances where Luke is making this point very clear. Jesus didn't do anything. And verse 42, one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. This guy says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I want you to think about this for a minute. This man committed some sort of a crime. We're not really told what. Maybe he was a thief. Maybe he killed somebody. We're not, you know, we say the thief between the cross, but you know, on the cross, we don't know exactly what they did. So the Romans arrested him. Somehow he committed this crime and then he got busted. So he was at home with his family for Passover, probably the night before, because these things, they don't usually let these things linger. So he's at home the night before, or he's in hiding or something, and the soldiers bust the door down. They beat him up, and they drag him to the Roman garrison. There, as he struggled, this thief, this guy, he was tied up and he was flogged, just like Jesus. And every stroke of this flogging was like being lit on fire, unimaginable pain. And the whole time, he cried and he screamed in pain, right, begging the soldiers to stop but to no success. They just kept on going over and over and over, stroke after stroke after stroke. Then they untied his hands and he collapsed into a pool of his own blood and tears. Right? And then they took him, tied him up, and put him in this little room somewhere near the gate. They threw him to the ground. And as he goes in there, he looks up and he sees two other men also in chains. One of them was dressed in a purple robe and had a crown of thorns and was beaten even worse than he was. And he recognized him, right? Oh, this is Jesus, the guy from the temple, the celebrity rabbi that everybody in town has been talking about. And they sit in this room probably for a few minutes, and then all of a sudden the gates open up and the soldiers come in. And they take each one of them and they throw them down, stretch out their arms, and tie them to this 80, 100-pound beam. And so this guy, they, they push him out the door. And so dragging him along, this thief, this criminal, moved through the city, and he looks to behind him or in front of him or whatever, wherever Jesus was. Jesus keeps falling. So they untie Jesus and they have some other guy carry the crossbeam. Then they get outside the city and they approach the rocky place. Oops, that's fine. Um, they get outside the city and they approach this rocky place where there's like probably 20 or 30 upright crucifixion beams already set up. And so the soldiers took this thief, again, screaming and crying. They held him down to the beam that he was already tied to. One soldier held his hand down while the other one drove a nail through his wrists. Again, unimaginable pain. Then they lifted him up in the air and dropped him into that crossbeam. Right? And the, the pain went shooting through his, his arms and his chest. Then they, the soldiers, while he's kicking and screaming, they grab his legs, twist him around, they nail his legs into the side. And now all of a sudden, all his weight is placed on his legs. And every breath was almost impossible. His strength was fading. His life was ending. He was bleeding. He had splinters in his back from the cross. His muscles were cramping up, which was like a huge part of the pain of crucifixion. And so what does he do? 
He's looking at the cross. He's looking at the guys next to him. He lashes out at Jesus. Aren't you the guy that brought Lazarus back from the dead? What gives, man? Save us all. And Jesus kind of turns his head over, covered in blood, and doesn't respond, kind of like he did with Peter. And then probably some time went by in all his pain. This guy's thinking about Jesus. He's thinking about the things he's heard Jesus say. He changes his mind. He remembers what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. And the other criminal on the other side, he's still yelling. So the first guy, our guy, he steps in. Dude, cut it out. And so in all of his pain, as hard as it was, he lifts up his head, which was almost impossible to do while you're being crucified. And he looks at Jesus, a man in the same situation, tortured, flogged, beaten, and then crucified. And he looks at this Jesus, covered in blood, whose life was fading away. In the worst possible position that anybody in human history has ever been in. And he looks at this guy and goes, that's the king. What? And he turns to him and he says some of the most amazing words in the entire Bible. Jesus, one of the only times anybody calls Jesus by name in the Gospels. Everybody calls him rabbi, lord, master, whatever. Very few people call him Jesus like this. He looks at him, he uses his name. Jesus, remember me when you win. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think about that. Jesus sure does not look like a king right now. Kings don't get tortured. Kings aren't crucified. They don't die between two criminals. And so for the whole book of Luke, we've been talking about this theme of the upside-down kingdom of God. Right? That the kingdom of God does not look like the kingdom of men. It's not about power and authority the way that we have kingdoms. And so all throughout Luke, we've been reading about these heroes who are the unlikely heroes. A tax collector, fisherman, teenage girl, prostitutes. All the people that you would never expect are the people that Luke lifts up and says, these are the people who understand the kingdom. And now here we are at this moment, and this dying criminal, Luke portrays him as this is the guy who gets it. He looks at Jesus and he realizes this is how Jesus inherits his kingdom. The disciples don't get it yet. Jesus' mom doesn't get it yet. The women who follow Jesus, they don't get it. His other disciples like Joseph and Nicodemus, they don't understand. Literally right now in the entire world at this point, there is one person who understands what's going on. And it's the thief next to Jesus, suffering the same fate. This guy here, the dying thief on the cross, he's the first Christian. The first Christian was a condemned criminal who didn't look at Jesus and say, boy, that sucks, the cross. He looked at Jesus and got it. He says, this is how you inherit your kingdom, and I want to be on your team. I want to be on the team of the guy who's being crucified. So Jesus responds, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly is Jesus' way of doing the men's warehouse, I guarantee it. Right? I guarantee, you know, remember that guy? I guarantee it. Not maybe, but definitely, you will be with me in paradise. There's been a lot of ink spilled on what did Jesus mean by paradise. I think what he's doing is he's using the picture of Eden. Like the new Eden is coming. The world the way it's supposed to be. Jesus says, pretty soon, man, both of us are about to be dead. And when you open your eyes, you're going to see me as a king. Right? And all of a sudden, all of this will be gone. Right now is what Jesus is telling this guy. Right now, you are experiencing... The absolute worst. They going by. There we go. 
Jesus tells this thief, right now you are experiencing the absolute worst that the kingdom of Babylon has to offer. But pretty soon you're, it's all going to be gone. The pain, the suffering, all of this Babylon kind of stuff, it's gone. And you're going to experience this new and better kingdom. What a beautiful promise. And then verse 44, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So now we're at about noon or so. And there's these two very weird out-of-place events. The first is darkness. Now, some people, oh, maybe there was an eclipse and stuff, but it's like scientists can do math, right? There was no eclipse right, at this time. That's not a thing that happened. What was going on here? Well, one, I want to point out, it doesn't say that the, it was like nighttime. It just said it got darker. And you're like, well, that can't happen. It's the middle of the day. Except, remember this? It totally happens. <laughs> do you guys, I mean, we've all been in the middle of the day. I took this picture at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Do you remember this? If I said to you guys all, if I said to you all, darkness covered the land of San Francisco, you'd all be like, oh yeah, I remember, right? So I don't know what happened. Somehow, darkness covered the land. The second thing is that the temple curtain, what, that was like what, last year, two years ago? Two years ago, 2020, yeah. He says the temple curtain was torn in two. So uh, we don't have time to get into this a ton, but we've talked about this before, right? The presence of God lived in the back of the temple above the Ark of the Covenant, and the, even though they didn't have the Ark at this point. But there was an area called the Holy of Holies. The idea was this is where God's very presence lived. There was this big, thick curtain, like not like curtain, curtain, right, that separated the presence of God from the people. And the idea was if you go into the presence of God, you'll die from the holiness. At the death of Jesus, one of the other Gospels tells us the curtain was torn from top to bottom. It's, very, it's symbolic. It makes a lot of sense if you know anything about this. Now the presence of God, because of the death of Jesus, is available to people in a way that it was not before. And we see then what happens in Pentecost with the tongues of fire, and we don't have time to get into all of that. But anyway, let's get back to this. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is very odd if you know anything. If you're thinking about crucifixion like we've been describing here, how do you picture somebody dying? They fade away, and then all of a sudden they're dead because they run out of strength. That's how you die from crucifixion. So to see somebody on the cross, the last thing that they do, call out with a loud voice, is out of place. And the reason Luke tells us this is because it's portraying Jesus is still having absolute control over what's happening. He calls out with this loud voice, Father. And what he does is, like again, I said, um, who you are at the very bottom of you, the core of you, pops up in times of crisis. And Jesus is in this time of crisis. And what flows out of him a whole bunch of times on the cross? Scripture. Right? And this is what he does. He quotes Psalm 31.5. He's calling out for everybody to hear. Even now, as he's dying on the cross, he's trusting his father. And then he breathed his last. And so with that, the king dies. The man conceived by the Holy Spirit, baptized by John the Baptist, Right? tempted in the wilderness, the healer, the teacher, the rabbi, the master. He breathed in, and then he breathed out one last time. And his head went limp and fell, and his body went lifeless. And there on the cross, this Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem, on top of that rock that looks like a skull, hung the corpse of the king of kings. Mary was standing right there weeping. The women who followed him were right there weeping. Um, the only disciple I think that was here was John. In plain view, all of these people look at Jesus and they see his lifeless corpse sagging and hanging from the cross. 
And then verse 47, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. So the centurion is like the captain, the guy in charge of the execution squad. This guy had probably seen hundreds or thousands. He had probably executed and crucified thousands of people in his lifetime as a professional executioner. Something about Jesus' death was different. He'd never seen anybody die like this. So he looks at him and he says, certainly this man was innocent. Matthew tells us he also kind of added, truly this was the son of God. Mark says the same thing. And so he looks at Jesus, he says two things. This guy didn't do it and he was the son of God. Again, Luke is holding up an outsider that you would not expect to be a hero in this story as this, is a, this guy is one of the people that gets it. In verse 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, that's a good phrase, this spectacle, that's what's going on here. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Again, the crowd that gathered eventually for the crucifixion was not the same crowd as the morning. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance and watched these things. So the women, again, upside down kingdom. This is a patriarchal culture. The men are in charge. The men are important, right? The men run the show. Who stands by Jesus? One guy, John, and then all the women. And the rest of the men are portrayed as a bunch of cowards who ran away. Right? Again, upside-down kingdom. The heroes are not the people that you would expect. In verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. So this is a guy, Joseph. He had voted no Right when they're executing Jesus. He, and Luke tells us he was a good guy, right? He, he, he hadn't found the kingdom of God yet, but he was looking for it. And he was looking for Jesus, and he was a secret sort of disciple of Jesus. So he went to Pilate. This man went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. This is very unusual. Normally, the bodies would be left up on the crosses for this reason. Burial rites in this culture were a huge deal, okay? Someday, when I get hit by another truck, <laughs> and I go... What do, you, what do I want you to do with my body? I don't care. <laughs> because cremate me, whatever. Bury me, put me in a catapult, shoot me over a wall. No, you know, like, I don't, I don't care what you do with the body, right? It, in this culture, though, they, like, really cared. And so to not have a proper burial was a huge, like, sign of a curse. Like, you remember back in the day in Kings, um, the threat to Jezebel was like, and then the dogs are going to eat your body. You know, that was, like, the worst thing you could say to somebody. So the idea was they leave the bodies up for the birds to eat and the vultures to come, you know, the, the, what are they called? Scavengers, that's what I mean, to come get and to eat you while everybody watched and goes, that guy's cursed by God. And so this guy doesn't want that to happen to Jesus. So at a very unusual, in a very unusual move, he goes to Pilate. Remember, he's a council member. He's on the Sanhedrin. So he, he can go to Pilate and ask. Right, average Joe Schmo. This is like a senator asking Joe Biden for a favor. I can't ask Joe Biden for a favor, right? I can't get through to him. Senator probably get through. Right? So he goes, he asks for the body, and they laid, they took, so he says, yeah. Um, Pilate says, yeah. And he took it down, he wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So the tomb is like this hole kind of in a rock that they cut out of a rock. And if you remember, we've talked about this before, but the way these tombs worked is they were kind of like a shelf or two for the bodies, and then there were these holes in the wall where after time you would put a body in there and you would let it like decomp, 
then you'd go take all the bones a few years later, put them in a box, and it's called an ossuary box, and then put it in the wall, right? And so they have these tombs still where you go into the tomb and there's all these boxes in the wall, right? So they put Jesus in one of these tombs. It was Joseph's tomb, because even though he's from Arimathea, he's on the council, he probably lives in Jerusalem. He spent a lot of money to have this tomb built for him and his family, and he gives it to Jesus here. Jesus is like, hey, man, I only need to borrow it for a few days. Wait, spoiler. <laughs> right? But uh, they put Jesus in the tomb, uh, and they wrap him up like they're supposed to. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb. Just, okay, they didn't, they, they, some people are like, ah, oh, they found the wrong tomb. Luke specifically puts in there, they watched where they laid Jesus. Um, and how his body was laid. These women knew exactly where this tomb was. They helped put it all there, put Jesus' body there. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So this is what happens now. Friday evening is coming. Jesus dies sometime, I think, around 3 o'clock. Sabbath, so it took time to go get the permission from Pilate. So as they get the body in the tomb, it was right before Sabbath starts Friday night. They don't have time to do all the Jewish burial rites and rituals and everything before Sabbath starts. And so because they're observant Jewish people, and they're, these are godly women, they, wait, they have to wait to do all this stuff. So Sabbath ends Saturday night, right? But it's going to be dark. So they're like, we've got to wait till early Sunday morning. And what we see in the next thing is like, as soon as light comes, boom, they're at the tomb, right? They're ready to go. Um, And so that's where we're going to leave Jesus now until January. So what we just read was absolutely gut-wrenching, right? The hero of our story, the king, is taken outside of the city and he's brutally executed. But this isn't exactly a tragedy. As sad as the story is, it's not really a sad story. As unjust as the death of Jesus was, it's also one of the best things that ever happened. See, this was God's plan all along. Let's go all the way back to Genesis, where this is the curse to the, the snake, right, to the serpent, after he, caught, you know, he tricked him into Adam and Eve into sinning. This is what God says. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is what God says to Satan. Someday, I'm going to send this guy. He's going to be an offspring of the woman. He's going to be a human being. And you're going to think you got him, but you didn't get him. You're going to think you won, but no, it's actually the other way around. You're going to hurt his foot. He's going to step on your face. Right? That's the new, the new John version. <laughs> and so everything in the Old Testament then after this is pointing to the cross of Jesus. Right, the story of Abraham taking his son up the mountain, but then God provides the lamb. The whole story of David and Goliath. David goes out and representing all the people, he wins the battle for everybody else. Jonah going, Jesus uses this one specifically. Jonah goes down into the depths and then he comes back up bringing salvation with him. The lamb at Passover who was sacrificed so everybody else could live. The whole then sacrificial system. All of this stuff was pointing to Jesus, right? The, the salvation by the blood of another. Then there were like specific prophecies that talked about how Jesus would die. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. On, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
You see, the death of Jesus was the plan of redemption for the Lord, like for the Father, to lay on Jesus our sins and then to pour out his wrath on Jesus. And so there's really two perspectives when you think about the crucifixion of Jesus. From the perspective of the world, it's not that impressive. What we want from our heroes is to show strength. We love winners, right? We, we want, we respect power. And Jesus is not powerful. He's not really a winner. He's not showing strength here. So to the world, the kingdom of the world, right? To the kingdom of Babylon that we see in the world, the cross makes absolutely no sense. But from the perspective of insiders of the kingdom, the cross is the ultimate example of the love of God. The way that Jesus dies is the ultimate example of the upside-down kingdom, of kingdom victory. Right? Paul says, for the word of the cross, so the teaching about the cross of Jesus, is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So while we cringe and shudder and cry and weep at the details of Jesus' crucifixion, at the same time, we love the cross. We cling to the cross, right? Because it's not just some rabbi up there bleeding and dying. It's our sin up there bleeding and dying and being crucified. Galatians says this, so I've been crucified with Christ. It's me up there. It's my sin up there on the cross. It's no longer I who live, not the sinful part of me who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what happens. Jesus gave himself for us. And so the big lesson is this. You're born a sinner, and you have lived your entire life in rebellion against your creator. But because of the cross, because of the pain of the nails shooting through Jesus' nerves, because he couldn't breathe, because with every, uh, you know, with every push off of his feet, he was running out of energy and in extreme pain, because of all of that, as blood poured out and pooled with the the dirt in the ground underneath the cross. Because of that, you have been made new. Your sin has been paid for. You and the Father are good for the first time, right? And so, here's the lesson then. Sin is going to make a reappearance in your life. It's going to pop up its ugly head. And when that happens, the devil is going to whisper in your ear, you need to be better. You need to do better to earn God's love. How can God possibly love someone like you? you? And in those moments, you need to do two things. Meditate on the cross. Stop and preach to yourself and say, and think about the blood, the gore, the torture, the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. And remember, it's your sin up there. And it's already been taken care of. God won't demand that it be paid for twice, right? And so we're people of the cross. This is why the cross, like we said in the intro, this is why the cross is our symbol. It's not a manger. It's not a crown, right? It's it's not, what were the other ones I said? I don't remember. You know, all the different ones we said. That's not, the cross is our symbol. This is why an instrument of humiliation and torture sits on the top of all of our churches, It's why we tattoo it. It's why we have necklaces. It's why we put it on the front of our Bibles. Because on that cursed tree, the king, he bled and he died for your sin. And as darkness covered the land, the curtain was torn in two 
so that you can come back and be with the presence of God, your creator. And so we hate the cross, but oh, at the same time, don't we love it? And so we'll leave Luke here for the year. What I want to do to end is just read one more verse. This is how we're going to close, to read one verse here from Peter, Jesus's buddy, who abandoned him and ran away. He says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is the key. This is the most important of all these verses we're going to read today. By his wounds, you have been healed. Wow. That's the amazing truth of the cross, right? All right, let's pray.